0: You have tasked me with the uh, wonderful opportunity to summarize, in essence, the last six weeks on word pictures of the church. So if you have not been here, have not been here that is what we've been going through um, quite wonderfully, might I add. It gives us great idea and understanding of who we are to each other, as Scripture has given that to us. Um, So I thought it would be appropriate to go to 1 Corinthians and for the rest of the service just talk about prophecy in tongues. I'm kidding. (laughs) I will let Pastor Aaron do that. And if you have any questions regarding that and its sufficiency, I'm sure that he is quite capable to answer that. Now, I'm sure that love passage in Corinthians, uh, it conjures up emotions of weddings. I think this is a very uh, common passage that we are very familiar with it i think we're usually familiar with it within the context of what a wedding ceremony right many wedding ceremonies i didn't even ask my wife this did we have this at our wedding ceremony no Uh, okay no we didn't have this at our wedding ceremony but but we had love there okay we had love there um Oftentimes, this is where we find it, and this is where we find this passage, almost specifically out of its uh, context of Corinthians, because you're not generally going to be reading before and after that, Um, but that is where we are right now in this chapter, and I'm going to get to that. I'm going to get to 1 Corinthians 13 in a bit, Um, but for now, I want to build up to it so that we are on the right contextual road. I think that scripture has paid for us to kind of traverse there. I think Pastor Aaron, uh, in basically introducing me for this week, uh, last week, he said that we see a gap between the word pictures of the church that uh, Pastor Aaron described, and as we read Scripture, and we see a gap between that and what we kind of look in our own real world context, that as we look at maybe our church, other churches, the national church uh, that's in America, or even the global church, and we see, wow. Um, I see what we're supposed to be, but I really don't see any congruency with who we are. I don't see there's a great parallel that we're really walking around or walking down the same um, path, that our tra- trajectory is at the same target. And so I kind of think of this uh, in a comical way, if I can, because it's difficult to, to watch at times. Um, if you've ever heard of or seen or know of Pinterest, raise your hand if you know what Pinterest is. Yes. The majority are almost all exclusively women. Um, but basically what Pinterest is, it's a, it's a website uh, where you can gather ideas that somebody has posted something up saying, hey, look what I can do, and they pin a whole bunch of things up there saying, you can do this type of craft, or you can make this type of recipe, or you can rearrange your house looking like this, or these are colors. All different um, ways that people can do certain things and they pin them up there. And then we, as onlookers onto this website, say, oh, wow, I can do that. And then we go back, and we go into the garage, or we go into our cupboards, or we go into our recipe closets, or we go into wherever we need to go, and we go and we attempt to do what we see that has been on the screen. And oftentimes, what we see on the screen, and as we compare our end results, doesn't necessarily match up. Can I get an amen? So unless we want to laugh and sit by and look at our wives saying look at them try and try and try, us guys, we have the same thing except we don't call it Pinterest. We call it HGTV or DIY. <laughs> Derek has had the opportunity to come to my home and um, rework my kitchen in ways that I couldn't dream and I'm sure he walks into many of uh, people's homes that people have dreamed and tried and have not necessarily succeeded. An example would be me in my first home that I own trying to hang one shelf. One shelf. If there's something that would test my Christianity and its grace that has been imparted to me, it was hanging one shelf over a washer and dryer. That's all I wanted to do. I just wanted to put my things up there, the, the wash claws or the, the detergent and the various things that you use for laundry and do that for my wife and feel proud. But no, there are like 30 pipes behind there doing water, hot water, cold water or something. Now, now before you think the end of the story is me putting a nail into one of those pipes, I did not. And this is where you know that God is miraculous. That of the thirty holes I put in my wall, not one of them hit a pipe. Not one of them. But I see something on DLI, I see something on a website, and I say, wow, that looks easy. And I try to walk that out in my everyday, and I screw it up. 30 times over with a hole. Like, how are there no studs in the back of that? I don't understand. Anyway. So the church... Maybe you've been hurt by the church. Maybe you've been shunned by the church. Maybe you've been ostracized, gossiped about, thought of as less than you are, judged by appearance, the outward, misjudged by the inward as you try to process that outward. Maybe you've been a part of that. So instead of being on the one side of receiving it, maybe you've been a part of that. Maybe you've been the one who has gossiped. Maybe you've been the one who has ostracized people. Maybe you've been the one who has said, you are not fit to sit in this pew, or at least not next to me. Maybe our ownership and our understanding of the dysfunction sometimes within the church or the colors by which people paint the church, who are on the outside looking in, maybe we're a part of that, either on the receiving end or on the giving end. The church is hurting. If you've not experienced pain by someone in the church, I can assure you with 100% certainty, you will. At some point in time, someone who is in the church will hurt you and as graciously as I can say this I guarantee it so my word picture of the church and as in your bulletin is broken we as a church are broken now before some of you become the battalion that Pastor Aaron has so graciously called us to be with me being the recipient of your weaponry I can assure you that if you think I'm about to poke holes in what Christ has redeemed as his own, you are sorely mistaken. The life, death, resurrection, and ascension of the Son of God should be the definitive statement on how God and we should see the church. So if you walk away with anything but a healthy view of God's tremendous, sustaining, and empowering grace in light of the growing pains we as the church share... Then I have done a disservice, and may I preemptively ask for your forgiveness, because that is not how God has shown his church to be throughout the entirety, the breadth of Scripture. Now with that said, let me walk us through some of the realities of who we are as the church. Pastor Aaron has done a great job over the last six weeks showing us how God sees us together as Christ's followers, but let us keep in mind what I have now added to the various word pictures, which is our brokenness. Now, I'm going to be semi-academic, and it's going to be real quick. And some of you are thinking, that's about as far as your academia goes, Kevin. I get that. But there's this word in theological circles and in teaching circles that's called inaugurated eschatology. Sounds big, a lot of syllables, a lot of big words, but inaugurated, meaning the start of or the beginnings, um, we think of this word using, uh, being used in terms of a presidential inauguration. It is the beginning every January, every four years, um, that a president in our country is inaugurated, that the starting of his presidency has actually occurred, and for the next four years by... God's willing that that president will be in office. That is not the culmination of it, but that's the start of it. He's inaugurating his presidency. Eschatology, meaning the study of end things, or we know them as end times. We think of Revelation. We think of maybe Daniel in the the Bible. We think of things to come, the last days. It is a tension that many key points of doctrine hold, whereby we are already, but we're not there yet since the ascension of Christ. Meaning the time period from Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension, since that time period, we're in this almost limbo. We're already there as Christ accomplished things on the cross. Something definite did happen. Something was secured. His blood meant something. But we're not there yet, meaning the fulfillment of what that accomplished, we're not experiencing in the now. And so we have entered into or inaugurated a time where Christ has secured all things as it was finished on the cross. That was not a lie. Yet we are awaiting their finale, their, the eschaton or the eschatology. Practically speaking, this walks out this way. Christ saved us, yet we are still experiencing spiritual warfare. Pastor Aaron referenced that. From the enemy and from the world. Ephesians 6.12. We do not battle against flesh and blood, but we are battling. Christ justified us before the Father, yet we still repent, we seek forgiveness, and we desperately need to realize that there is no condemnation before our righteous judge. Romans 8.1, therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ sanctified us by his blood, yet we still struggle daily with sin and are disciplined by the Father. Romans 6.12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body and obey its evil passions. We struggle. We struggle. We are raised with Christ, yet our bodies are getting frailer each day. Can I get an amen on that? My shoulders, my elbows, my knees. 2 Corinthians 4.16, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Thank the Lord. The focus is on the culmination or the end of things. When Christ returns and we are glorified and with him, and as we, the church, hold this truth in one hand, we also do not live in a state of denial that we are broken until we are fully made whole and face to face with Christ. There is a quote in your bulletins, and if you have it, I would encourage you to turn to it. It's at the bottom of this gaping space where notes are to be taken. It's by John Stott. And he says this, caught in the tension between what God has inaugurated by giving us a spirit, meaning that when we were saved, God's spirit came into us, he inaugurated us into a spirit, and what he will consummate in our final adoption and redemption, we groan with discomfort and longing. The indwelling spirit gives us joy, the coming glory gives us hope, but the interim suspense gives us pain. Like it's a real, real pain. Sometimes that pain is very much reflected in our local body. Sometimes we look across the chasm, if you will, of the church in America, and we see certain speakers or see see certain people who say that we're part of the church, and inwardly we're like, oh, this is painful. You are so not there yet. But it's a reality that we have to wrestle with. If the last six weeks of word pictures has showed us anything, it has showed us that in the midst of what Stott describes as interim pain, in the midst of that, God has designed us to be, serve, and function together. We simply cannot understand who we are in Christ apart from our brothers and sisters, which is the church. I think about this book. Forget for a second that it's a Bible, and please don't like throw me off the stage by saying that. If I were to rip a page out of this book, it would just be just a page, right? In and of itself, it is described as a page, it is defined as a page. It's a reality that it is a page. That being said, when I put it into here, bound together with all of these other pages. Instead of being a page, it becomes part of a book. Very much like us, that we have and are individuals, but when we come together as a body, we are the church. We have our specific definitions and what defines us as individuals. However, when we come together, our definition expands and our purpose is made known. So when I speak of the church in this sense, I am not the church, but we are the church. Yeah, we need to understand our individuality, and God has made each and every one of us fearfully and wonderfully and precisely and specifically, as Psalm 139 states. But we can't lose sight of the fact that we also become a body, a temple, a bride, a battalion, a flock, and the priesthood of believers when joined together. And this was both God's intent and his design. We cannot lose sight of that. Though we're individuals, we play a role together. And when we do this, we will see our corporate identity and function as the church in light of our individual reality that we are still being disciplined, as Hebrews twelve eleven says. We are still growing up in Christ, as Colossians 2, 6, and 7 says. We are still being pruned, as John 15 says, as we are on the vine of Christ. We are in a process, and when we lose sight of this, we start to make individuality our focus, thinking more highly or lowly of those in the church, or even ourselves. Even ourselves. And when that happens, Paul says, we are completely, completely missing the point. We're missing the mark. Second Corinthians 10.12 says this, But when they measure themselves by one another, compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. When you start to become so inwardly focused or individually focused and we lose sight of who we are within the context of the church, we are missing the mark. It's going over our heads. We don't understand why we're created and part of the purpose and intention of our creation. In other words, when our minds and our hearts start to elevate people as if their Christian expression or giftings are more necessary to the church, we are headed in the wrong direction. And eventually... We will begin to retreat. We become inverted and self-absorbed. The result being, the church suffers. Or, we will make idols of brothers and sisters, expecting them to bear the weight of perfection and purpose. And the result being that, again, the church suffers. God created each of us with intention and a role to play in the church let me take like seven seconds preacher time to speak to young people who are in here. I know a lot of times there's a difficulty between us who are parents or maybe adults in the church who are waiting for you to arrive at some state within your walk or even develop a walk. And maybe that chasm or that understanding of us speaking to you or encouraging you or even teaching you can be perceived as that we're looking down upon you and that we're waiting for you at some point to be useful in this thing we call the body of Christ or in this thing we call Christianity. If I or if we've ever come across that way, that you're not there yet, please understand that we are not there yet and we are still learning. That as you profess Christ, that God in that point deposits His Spirit in you for the purposes of serving Him in the body where you are. That we don't relegate you to some point down the line. That we say God's Spirit is in you. And if that is the truth, that it is God who is working in you for His growth and for His purposes and for the betterment, the betterment of our body. We resonate better when you are a part of that, when you know you are a part of that. And if you think this is just with kids in the church, this is also with adults who have grown up in a shun state and think that they too have nothing to offer, that their past now eclipses God's present and using them by His Spirit to impart goodness in the church by His grace. And that is so far off And so many people stay out of the church because they don't think that they should have a part in what's going on on the inside. And a lot of that is us because we've not shown them that they do. And we've not shown them that we still are not there yet. And that we are walking out our purposes as God works in us for his good. In my brief aside, in regard to our local expression, if we don't show up on our primary gathering days and we see it as optional, it speaks volumes to our understanding of the God-created need that each one of us has as worshipers, as brothers and sisters, in our local expression of the church. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 says and emphasizes that we are to encourage each other that we should not forsake or make it a habit of forsaking the gathering of the fellowship. I've walked through some of this in our Sunday school class and spiritual disciplines within the church, but I see as no coincidence that directly after Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, or verses 26 through 31, which is one of the last warnings of those who fall away and are not part of the body of Christ, I find it no coincidence that they're right next to each other. We need to be encouraging each other. You play a part in encouraging me, and I play a part in encouraging you. You are vital. We are in this together by Designed. This brings us to 1 Corinthians 13. And as you read 1 Corinthians 13 and if you look around America today, hopefully you are encouraged. (laughs) We are not at the point, or maybe we are, of the Corinthian church but at some level we should have a relatability to where they are and where we are. The Corinthian church is a veritable blueprint that God has given us For what a broken church looks like. It's so broken that God gives us two letters containing 29 chapters between them. And we know from scripture that these aren't the only letters that Paul wrote. That there were more. I don't even want to know what was in them. So here is a quick drive-by of what things look like leading up to chapter 13. And I will quickly do this drive-by. Hold on. Chapters 1 through 4, Paul addresses divisions in their church. Nothing new. I spoke about this a few months ago. He reminds them that Christ crucified trumps all wisdom and rhetoric surrounding them, that Paul is nothing, and the cross is what provides access to the one who is everything when it comes to their growth. Chapter 5, Paul rebukes the church regarding their sexual immorality. And misappropriated freedom in Christ they are boasting of things in which they ought to be ashamed remember Paul is writing to the church these are the people who call themselves what we know as Christians this is the church chapter 6 in light of their divisiveness Paul lets them know that lawsuits against each other aren't the best option when it comes to working out their differences as this only mimics the world I think we're seeing that today as we're trying to mimic the world in our church and our doctrine. The world says it's good. Let's mimic that. Let's say it's good. The kingdom of God works by a whole different set of principles, which is why they should not sue each other, let alone live in and boast about the various kinds of sin in their lives. Chapter 7, Paul follows by letting them know what marriage can and should look like in various circumstances. Each person has a calling regarding how their marriage or singleness can and should reflect God's goodness at various stages of their life and in various marital situations. Chapters 8 through 10, Paul addresses food sacrifice to idols that though the food is not bad in and of itself, it should be eaten wisely so as not to offend those who demonstrate convictions otherwise. Some are still young in the faith and have yet to be freed from that particular issue since they connect it with the past idolatrous worship of their own. Those strong in their faith need to think of each other before acting in such a manner as to hinder the growth of younger believers. I'll pause right there. And think about us as I reflect about what I just said about younger believers in the body. What in us is hindering growth? That how we walk out our Christianity is causing a chasm between our children and God and who He really is, the Scriptures revealed to Him. Chapter 11 Paul addresses the flagrant misuse of partaking in the Lord's Supper in an uncaring manner, creating a chasm between those who don't have the means and those who do. In essence, during this chapter, you see that those who were wealthy or rich and fellowshipping around the meal prior to communion were using the elements, were getting drunk on the wine, so that those who did not have the means and were not invited to the party did not now have the opportunity to partake, let alone in the festivities eating together, but also in the elements of communion, therefore being forsaken when they celebrated the Lord's Supper together. In chapter 12, Paul begins to reinforce that they need to be unified in one spirit as each of them play a role in working together to build each other up in the faith with their different spiritual giftings. They are like different parts of a body which need to function together in order to be most effective. And then we come to chapter 13, the love chapter. This chapter, as one commentator puts it, is almost like a digression in a sense. You almost sense Paul is pausing to readjust their thinking in light of chapter 13. And the way I can, I guess, best picture this, at least the way I did as I was reading commentaries on this, is that you have this action sequence in a a movie, and there's all kinds of stuff that's going on, and all all of a sudden, as you're seeing, you know, planes come in and bullets are flying, all of a sudden there's a slowdown in the movie, and everything just slows down so that you as a viewer can capture exactly what the movie wants you to see. It is an understanding or is it a clue or is it a foundational element in why the fighting is going on or what's going to happen next. There's a purpose for it. Everything slows down. In chapter 13, this is what I see that's happening. They're dealing with all of this crazy stuff. And all of a sudden, everything just stops and he slows down and he readjusts their mindset. And so it's almost seen as a digression, but it's not. And the context that 1 Corinthians gives us is that this chapter is written to the local church in Corinth in the midst of much brokenness as the church was wildly out of control and divided. It was written as a response to the disunity the church was experiencing in numerous areas in order to unify them in their brokenness. That even when they are functioning with the most extravagant giftings of the Holy Spirit, and they were, again, I'm going to reset our minds here. We read this and we think these are not Christians. So this is the church, and this is a church in which the Holy Spirit was very active, alive, and well with its giftings. Those who don't know Christ don't have these giftings, in other words. These are the people of God working through their giftings. But this was written because of their incompleteness which was still shining through without the primacy of love. And in verses 4-7, through seven, Paul begins to speak of love and defines it in such selfless terminology. It's almost as if he personifies it being completely outward focused regardless of what comes at it. And these attributes of love They're not exhaustive by any stretch. So in other words, if you were going to define love and you said this is exactly what love is, this part of 1 Corinthians is not remotely close enough to understand what love is. Paul is using these specific attributes of love that pertain to what he has been addressing throughout his letter. I see this very clearly. Be patient and kind. Well, they've been divisive the church is divided constantly in many different ways shapes and forms they're envying and boasting well did they do that they argued they boasted over who whose corner they were in if you remember a few months back one follows apollos one follows paul you're missing it who's following christ what does the cross mean they're rejoicing in wrongdoing remember back in chapter five they're boasting in their sexual sin so much so that those who are onlook- who are onlookers who aren't in the church are embarrassed By what they are doing. So love does not envy and does not boast, especially in the things that are not of God. And so in verses 8 through 11, he then sets love apart from the temporal nature of all they are experiencing now with their giftings and their strife. And we come to verse 12, and Paul lands on the why which is the reason they and we live in this tension of the already but not yet phase in our personal lives and therefore corporately as the church. And verse 12 reads, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. The description of love in the previous verses is rooted and perfected in god who out of his pure love sent his son for our benefit so we understand from first john that god is love if you want to talk about describing love start with by understanding who god is and then you will see how limited these definitions are but god is love and out of his love that as part of his very nature, meaning his essence, comes Christ to us. In essence, that's the gospel. Out of the essence of who God is comes his love for us as it is expressed in the gospel. And the description of love in those verses is rooted there. 1 John 4.9 says this, In this... The love of God was made manifest, meaning evident. It was made visible among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Again, the gospel message, which is the best outworking of love that we could ever see, experience, or be able to relay to those around us. Like the Corinthians, the gifts of the Spirit that we manifest stem from the love that God has for his children by depositing his Spirit in us. It's it's just amazing that he would do that. They are intended to build up the body of Christ. They are intended to unite us as we glorify the head who is Christ. Even as the Corinthians functioned in the prophetic gifts, and so you kind of have to wrap your mind around this, that the prophet or the role of the prophet... And those who have prophetic gifts in the New Testament, these are the very words of God that are meant to either encourage, to warn, or to foretell, meaning in the future, say of things that Christ will do. Even those who are functioning with those gifts who we feel like might have a direct line to God, even they are functioning in part. Even that is not the fullness of God, even within the gifts that he's bestowed upon us, his body why because they like we are not there yet the gospel is not a starting line where we begin the race and run our own rather the gospel is the sustaining road that consistently paves the way to christ on our life's journey christ's love which the cross epitomized is what we take up daily both individually and as we come together 1 John 3.16 says this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Okay, so by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That's the body. That's us in here. That's the body of Christ. That's the believers who call themselves Christians. We ought to be speaking the grace saturated gospel as the primary evidence of love to ourselves and to our brothers continually so that the world will know that we are different. If we don't believe it continually applies to us, a broken people saved by grace, that's what we are, then the world will for sure, they're going to think it's going to sustain the pain that they're walking in. Meaning, if they look onto us and we are not applying the gospel, to our brokenness because we're trying to hide the fact that we're broken then why would somebody looking from the outside in want a piece of what we got here we have nothing to offer but the hypocrisy that they see however if we have the gospel in one hand firmly held and the reality of our brokenness when we express that and reach out to a dying world and they see both and that this is a solution, then they relate to both our brokenness and Christ's brokenness and that that's what makes us whole. Martin Luther says this, preach the gospel to one another lest we become discouraged. Even better, Jesus said the world will know us by the love we have for each other, for one another. I think oftentimes this verse is, I would suggest, pulled out of context, and we think the love we have for everyone, well, yeah, we are supposed to love others, but the world will know us by the love we have for one another. Christian to Christian, family to family. It's in John 13. In John 17 Jesus prays for our unity in the gospel as believers for effective gospel proclamation. So my question to us when was the last time you spoke the gospel to yourself? Your family? And your brothers and sisters in Christ? If you're on the same page as me, at least in my life, when I understand that the gospel was not a one-time application, but a continuous understanding of how Christ sustains me to the end, and I'm not there yet, then I need to be consistently proclaiming the gospel to myself, to my family, my wife and I, to our children, and me to you, and you to me. I need to be reminded that I'm broken, but at the same time, I need to be reminded that Christ. Is sufficient in my brokenness. So, when was the last time you preached the gospel to yourself, to your family, and to those around us? And, and I guess I'll clarify that when I say the gospel, it's not that we need to be reminded per se that the life of Christ given to us in its richness, that is death. And his blood that paid for us that his resurrection and his ascension we need to literally know that story continually 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 i know i know what you're gonna say i know you're gonna say i know you're gonna say no it's about how the gospel and that reality applies and impacts our every single day life and that we rely upon it for our very breath it is what sustains us that's what we need to be preaching to each other because i don't know about you but there are many times that I need to be reminded of how the gospel works itself out among brothers and sisters. And I could sit here and I can list no less than 10 people that since July, when I was let go from my job, how many people have shown the gospel to me and preached the gospel to me and echoed the fact that God is sustaining me even in difficult times. Don't think that you don't have something to offer when it comes to the gospel working through your life. You are not too young. You are not too outcast or too abused. You are not too high that it shouldn't. The gospel love is a playing ground because we do need each other and we need each other by design because that is how God designed us. And so, we as the church, we are the body functioning together to glorify the head who is Christ. We're the temple, fashioned together as living stones, as Christ's spirit dwells richly within us. We are the bride of Christ, eagerly anticipating Christ's return for a heavenly feast with the bridegroom. We are the battalion waging war against the powers and principalities in the heavenlies, as God is our victor and his kingdom will come in its fullness. We are the flock confidently led by our chief shepherd to green pastures and still waters as his rod and staff comfort us together. We are the priesthood, the ambassadors of Christ, who is making his appeal through us to a lost and dying world. And we too are broken, realizing our need to cleave to the gospel for the sake of, of doing all of the above effectively with each other and the power of the Spirit as His love works in and through us. John Piper has a, a website fully resourced with a myriad of things, but it's called Desiring God. And yesterday as I was reviewing and working through this message, it's, um, he had sent out a message that said this basically, when you worship tomorrow morning, and you're distracted by the little things that will inevitably go wrong or be off. And let's put a person's face on that, if we were to be honest sometimes. Remember that this is not a show. It's a family. We are the church. We are God's people. And it's all of the mess that Paul lays out before the Corinthians, and this is amazing to me as you reflect upon all of that I said that they were going through. As a, as a people of God, he still says to them in 1 Corinthians 6:11, and this is when they are boasting of their sin that people are ashamed on the outside to even look of. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians 6:11, "But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the spirit of our God." Good, yeah. In the midst of our brokenness, the reality that we are washed and that we are God's and that we are His, that we are justified. That is what Paul needs them to see. Already, but not there yet. And the great news of the gospel is this. Christ's brokenness made a way that will culminate in our wholeness once and for all. So as we get ready to partake in communion, this brokenness The ultimate brokenness the reason we come to the table in our brokenness is because of Christ's brokenness which will make us whole in its fullness one day until then let the gospel so saturate our lives and as a body that people say wow what's different what is different in the midst of difficult times this is how the gospel is playing out in this church's life. In the midst of frustrations where we are and where we're not, let the gospel so saturate our lives that we're, we're walking, relying on it, encouraging each other and loving each other along the way. Let us pray. Father, thank you for Your love that was defined by the fact that you sent your son to die for us, that we might be conduits of that grace to each other and to a dying world. And as we get ready to partake in the Lord's Supper, that we would understand your brokenness afresh and anew and that you would work in us, that we would love each other and serve each other and proclaim the gospel to each other as you intended. Thank you for sustaining us in the midst of our brokenness. Thank you for loving us in the midst of our brokenness. Thank you that you would choose for us to play a role, each one of us, in our brokenness, but for your glory. We commit our lives to you. We commit our brokenness to you. And we love you.